0: Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent.
1: I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno.
0: And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis, down in Las Vegas.
1: On this episode of Indie Matters, reporter Tabitha Mueller and myself talk with a law professor from UNLV, an attorney with Nevada Legal Services, a homeless Reno resident, and a reporter from Boise, Idaho, about a court case that has implications about homeless encampment
0: cleanups here in Nevada. After that, assistant editor Michelle Rindells talks with departing U.S. Attorney for Nevada Nick Trutanich as he leaves office following the election of Joe Biden and the administration change in Washington, D.C.
1: At the end of the show, healthcare reporter Megan Messerly gives us an update on the coronavirus pandemic here in Nevada. Amid a global pandemic and an unforgiving job market that's spurring housing insecurity and increased rates of homelessness, lawmakers are grappling with how to balance concerns that homeless individuals are creating safety and sanitation problems with the reality that there are not enough resources to protect unsheltered populations from the harsh elements of the environment. Stress on city shelter space and a lack of ability to house homeless populations has not halted cleanup efforts in the city of Reno or the city of Las Vegas. Advocates question the legal and ethical implications of moving people during a pandemic and when there is little shelter space available.
2: You know, I've lost my possession so many times, I'm just numb
1: to it. It doesn't help to get mad anymore. Reporter Tabitha Mueller and I interviewed a few experts on the issue of homeless encampment cleanups and the legal implications. It's all predicated on one court case, Martin v. Boise. I'll let Tabitha take it from here.
3: Martin v. Boise dates back to 2009 when six homeless plaintiffs in Boise, Idaho said city laws prohibiting them from sleeping outdoors within the city limits violated their Eighth Amendment rights, which prohibit cruel and unusual punishment.
4: So you have to make a determination based on whether you think you can get into that shelter on that day. And, and that's a determination. It's not as though these people are, are walking around, can look at an app and say, you know, is,
0: is this shelterful, is it, is it not full?
3: The plaintiff's argument centered around the idea of sleep as a basic human right and made the case that it is cruel to wake people up or force them to move if they have nowhere else to go. The case went through nine years of litigation until it reached the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, a federal court that hears appeals from nine Western states. The Ninth Circuit ruled in favor of the plaintiffs. The court said if there are no sheltering options, the government cannot criminalize sleeping outdoors. After the Ninth Circuit decision, the city of Boise appealed the case to the U.S. Supreme Court, which denied the petition and let the decision stand. Even so, the outcome of the case only prohibited the criminalization of homelessness, meaning cities can't arrest or ticket people for being outdoors. But a lot of questions remain. To dive into those questions and explore what cities in the West will have to navigate next, We spoke with reporter Madeline Beck at the Mountain West News Bureau in Idaho, who reported
5: on the Boise case in 2019. So that case has a lot of history. And while Boise, Idaho has a lot fewer homeless people and a lot smaller homeless problem than a lot of places around the West, think like big cities in California, it's still been kind of an issue of like funding shelters or, yeah, what to do with this population. I guess every city has had that same question. So the city changed its ordinance to say, okay, we'll only cite people if there's no room at any shelters in town. If there is any room at any of the homeless shelters, then we can cite them. The guiding principles that came out of the court case are essentially, you can't ban people from sleeping outside in a public place. That is something that is fundamental to your, to any person, any person can has to fall asleep that is a that's something a human has to do to live and so because of this court case it makes it a lot more difficult for cities uh, and municipalities across the west and at this point nationally people are looking at this and citing it in their local ordinances to say well how can we ban people from being in certain areas at certain times just to keep them from sleeping in those areas Advocates
3: and attorneys warn that some actions taken by cities in Nevada related to homeless encampment cleanups have placed those municipalities in a legally tenuous position. For example, in some eyes, municipalities are not offering enough advance notice of cleanups.
6: So there, there is a struggle between a city coming in saying you have to leave, we're giving you notice that you have to leave. I would argue that notice would have to be in writing and the city doesn't always agree that the notice has to be in writing.
3: That's attorney Ray Gertkin with Nevada Legal Services. Records from Reno City Council meetings show that before a cleanup takes place, a sign and other notifications should be posted at camps, providing residents with at least 24 hours' notice to vacate, and offering storage, resources, and services. Here's Gertkin on what the city can and can't do, and some of the legal uncertainty.
6: I know a lot of individuals that we've spoken to, they're really interested primarily in not having to move. And so one of the things that is still a problem is that while Martin versus Boise did say you can't criminalize camping necessarily if you're homeless, that doesn't mean that the city tell people that they have to leave a park that they're camping in. Regardless of whether or not you get noticed, the city does have the authority to clean up its public spaces. And the Truckee River and the watershed is extremely important to the community. And so there's no way that anyone's going to be able to say that the city does not have the duty to make sure that the public spaces are clean, safe, sanitary, and healthy. And so that is going to be the struggle is that you don't have a right to camp. What you do have a right to is free from government invasion into your liberty, your bodily autonomy, and your property.
3: Though the minimum time frame is 24 hours notice, John McNamara, the operations chief for the Reno Fire Department, said the city usually notifies camps a few days before a cleanup takes place. The city will have Reno police and social service workers walk the area to offer assistance and connect homeless individuals with services. But printed notices sometimes don't make it into the hands of all encampment residents. And if residents are gone during the day, they can also miss verbal reminders. Last year, we spoke with Troy Forbes, a homeless Reno resident, who said he hadn't known about a cleanup because he was working an odd job, only to come back and find out that his belongings had been cleared out without his knowledge.
2: One day, I got to work for like an hour and a half. I talked my buddy and let me go take the dump truck to the dump. So I get an hour and a half work. When I got back to camp, and mind you, I was going to be in a store shed, had every, almost everything like rechargeable batteries, just everything that I needed to be comfortable. Came back to nothing except for a couple of pieces of shoelace and a couple of pieces of paper on the ground. Other than that, everything was gone.
3: Gertkin said that homeless people have a right to keep their property, but legally defining and defending what a person owns can be tricky.
6: One of the clearest cut things that we absolutely know is happening is that it's throwing away um, people's property with no notice no no right to reclaim, just picking it up and trashing it. And that is 100% a violation of the, of the 14th Amendment due process right to your property. So the government has to give you notice, we are going to come in and we are going to take your stuff. And then they have to give you a right to a hearing before they can dispose of it. Now, granted, that hearing doesn't necessarily have to be before it's taken, it can be after, but then that entails storing the property. And we know for a fact that you know, that is not happening, that when the camps are getting cleared, the bulldozers are in, the dump trucks are there, the property is going, you can't take it. And and the police officers are telling people, if you don't take it, it's going to get thrown away. And that is a constitutional violation.
3: The challenge with litigating and protecting homeless populations is that it's hard to bring court cases forward because homeless people are often so transient and unaware of their legal rights. In Troy's case, it was almost impossible to prove that his belongings had been taken. It's a homeless person's word against a municipality. Did you report it to anyone?
2: No, because how can I prove it? Right. I wasn't there. Right. You know, and what good would it do?
3: Reno City Policy says that cleanup crews identify, tag, and store property at the community assistance center for up to 90 days. But Troy and others have said that they've not seen the storage facilities, nor have they had access to them. The city has not followed up on our request to see the storage facilities. Troy said that he and others in the encampments would be happy to help keep camps cleaner, but they need resources and better communication from the city. He added that he wishes government officials would include or consult members of unsheltered populations when addressing homelessness.
2: All the money they spend is against us, they never offered to put out, we've asked for dumpsters, we've asked for, you know, for help, you know, um, we do it ourselves for the most part, you know?
3: But Troy and I have spoken on and off for the last year or so. The last time I called, I got no response. I've not heard from him since October.
1: Though we've been focusing on Reno for this piece, there are similar situations happening in Las Vegas, including an ordinance that sparked controversy last January when Las Vegas wanted to ban sitting or sleeping on the sidewalk in certain parts of the city. It's clear this issue is not relegated to just the north or south, but rather is a statewide problem.
3: Some have expressed concern that some of the actions taken by the city of Las Vegas are unconstitutional.
7: What the court says is criminalizes a status, which is a sort of a controversial idea. And this is where the Eighth Amendment comes in.
3: That's Ian Bartram, a constitutional law professor with the Boyd School of Law at UNLV.
7: The Supreme Court has held a couple times that there are at least... One narrow class of things you can't criminalize, and those are things that are based on status, which when I say status, it means it's something about me. I can't change this. So the, the court has said it doesn't make any sense to make it criminal if I can't do anything about it. So the seminal case in that is a case about drug addiction. Robinson's case, and it was a case where state had made it criminal to be addicted to drugs. Wasn't punishing doing the drugs, right? That can still be criminalized. the status of being an addict was made criminal. And the Supreme Court said you can't do that because people don't have any control. Martin v. Boise is they said that sleeping outside when you're homeless is like that, right? If there's no other place to sleep, then you really have no choice. It's really sort of a feature of your homelessness that you're going to have to sleep outside.
3: Professor Bartram also said the Fourth Amendment is relevant here, just as it is for the search and seizure of property. So what are the two cities saying about all of this? Reno and Las Vegas city attorneys declined interviews, but a Reno city spokesperson did send us this statement.
1: The city of Reno does its best to protect and serve all of our residents, no matter their housing situation. Recent court decisions and interpretations have provided some guidance on how cities should address the unsheltered population issue. Homeless persons cannot be punished for sleeping outside on public property in the absence of adequate alternatives. However, safety concerns for our homeless population and our environment need to be addressed for the safety of all of our residents and our environment. We have made it a priority to address this issue in a holistic manner by addressing the need for shelter as well as protecting our environment criminalization of homelessness is not the solution to the problem.
3: The cities also argue that if there are beds available in homeless shelters, then a cleanup can take place, or people may be asked to leave an area. As reporter Madeline Beck mentioned earlier, advocates say that if there are 20 people in an encampment and there are five beds available in a homeless shelter, then it doesn't matter that there are available beds. There still aren't enough beds. The law is ambiguous, Professor Bartram said. Gertkin added that other factors such as pets, families and partners, gender identity and religious or other affiliations, some of which shelters have rules about, could also play into the legality of encampment
6: cleanups. I mean, nobody's really talking about inclusivity in the shelter space, but that's going to be the biggest problem is people aren't going to have be able to have pets. People aren't going to be able to have family and be in family units. I mean, a lot of them are separated by gender and then you have issues with what does gender mean? And so I do think that there are going to be issues out there that, you know, we haven't really seen much of. But creating more shelter spaces is not really the answer. But, you know, it's a I guess it's a start.
3: Professor Bartram also weighs in saying
7: but there's also a sort of gray area question. What if the only beds are open in religious shelters where you're required to, you know, do a Sunday school thing or a worship thing or say a prayer or whatever it is? You could certainly see that being a potential free exercise problem or a combination of the Eighth Amendment. So maybe if there are only if there are some secular beds left in the city, right, can, can you punish me?
3: The last factor that throws yet another wrench into the whole process has to do with the coronavirus. Are shelters safe? Are camps safe? Are the cleanups being conducted in a safe way? Gherkin, lawyer with Nevada Legal Services, explains.
6: One of the more interesting legal arguments that I was researching, you know, since essentially coronavirus started, was this idea that the city can't put people in danger. And so there has been case law that suggests that a police officer enforcing a camp cleanup in the middle of winter can't tell somebody to move and then keep their heater or their blankets or their tent and essentially throw away what's going to protect them from death by hypothermia or you know whatever the the condition might be and so now you have this issue with coronavirus and you know, the CDC came out, Washoe County Health District came out and said, leave the encampments alone. We want people to stay in their communities so that we can stop the spread of coronavirus. And so that was the most um, difficult thing to try to understand is initially that kind of seemed to be the case, that everybody was complying with that directive to let the campers stay in their their camps in the community and and let them live in their communities and not potentially spread it, spread coronavirus, you know, among the population and among um, everyone in in the communities. But that didn't last very long. And so you did see the, the camp cleanups picking up later this summer. And I do think that there is an interesting argument that the city should not have been doing that. When we're now facing, how many people who have died because of coronavirus? Mutations that are much more easily spread.
3: The gray area in all of this is apparent from every angle. From how the cleanups are being conducted, to who is conducting them, to the amount of notice given, to property rights, to the definition of living in a public place versus camping there. So what are the solutions? Here's Madeline Beck, the reporter from Idaho, with some of the changes that have been proposed or instituted since the big Boise court case.
5: There's a lot of creative solutions that people have been trying to make. One is that certain findings, even at Boise State University here, show that it will be cheaper just to house them, just to get them their own apartment. You know, just to get them their own space to create housing. There are a couple facilities specifically for the chronically homeless, for veterans uh, who are homeless that come with people to help them there, people to check on them, people to help them with any mental health issues. Uh, Some are also looking at, well, should a city set up their own encampment that is essentially very You know, it it has its own plumbing or at least has outhouses. It has spaces for people to be, for people who, you know, just drive around in their cars and they're homeless in that way. Maybe it includes parking for those people so they just don't just wander through neighborhoods and just park on random streets and move a car every three days.
3: Reno temporarily suspended homeless encampment cleanups when the pandemic first began. But cleanups resumed on May 4th. And from May until November, records show that Reno conducted about 167 cleanups. The most recent cleanup in northern Nevada took place on Tuesday, February 16th in the city of Sparks. And there are more cleanups planned by both Reno and Las Vegas in the coming months. Officials in northern Nevada hope to reduce the need for homeless encampments and cleanups with a soon-to-be-built 46,000-square-foot central shelter facility referred to as the Nevada Cares Campus, which will have space for men, couples, pets, a designated campground, and healthcare services but advocates say that more needs to be done. And we're expecting them to be quite vocal during this year's legislative session. Here's late Assemblyman Tyrone Thompson on a bill hearing during the 2019 legislative session.
0: Good morning, Chair Flores and the Assembly Committee on Government Affairs. For the record, I'm Tyrone Thompson, Assemblyman in District 17. I'm excited to present Assembly Bill 174, which establishes the Nevada Interagency Advisory Council on Homelessness to Housing. I wanna start off with a quote uh, from an unknown um, author um, that I think is quite fitting for the work that we as a whole are tasked to do as a a state legislature. Let us feed the hungry, house the homeless, stop the killing and provide medicine for the sick. And when we have all accomplished that, then we can sit around and argue about everything else.
1: On February 8th, lawyers involved in the Martin v. Boise case announced that they had reached a settlement. So ends the 12-year-long lawsuit, with the city of Boise updating two ordinances to protect homeless people from facing arrest or fines for sleeping or camping outside if no shelter is available, and also updating or creating additional overnight shelter space. We'll keep a close eye on the legislative session here in Nevada for any updates or changes to how Nevada's cities conduct cleanups and whether we'll see changes in the law now that the Martin v. Boise case has been settled. This story was reported and produced by Tabitha Mueller and myself, Joey Lovato, and was edited by me. For more stories and updates on homelessness and other topics affecting your community here in Nevada, stick with us here at the Nevada Independent.
8: Nick Chertanich has been the U.S. Attorney for the District of Nevada since he was nominated by President Trump and confirmed by the Senate two years ago. But with the change of administration, he and more than 50 other Trump-era U.S. attorneys were asked to resign, and this weekend marks the end of his term in the role.
9: That's something that's relatively typical to happen, and so it's something that obviously I was expecting, but I would have loved to have more time in the office to continue the great work that we've been doing over the last several years.
8: Listeners might be more familiar with the state attorney general, a position that is filled through a high-stakes statewide campaign and serves as the top law enforcement officer for state issues. In fact, Trutanich served as the chief of staff for Republican Attorney General Adam Laxall during his four-year term. Trutanich explained a bit more about his role for the District of Nevada as a federal prosecutor, is different.
9: The U.S. attorney is the top law enforcement officer on the federal level in the District of Nevada, the whole state. In addition to prosecuting federal criminal cases, the U.S. attorney represents the United States in court when the United States is sued.
8: Trutanich told us about some of his proudest accomplishments
9: while in his position for a little over two years. I think... The biggest accomplishment and the thing that I'm most proud of is that the office had its priorities right. We were nimble enough to, to sort of stay on the heartbeat of what was going on in Nevada, combating human trafficking, domestic violence, fatalities, violent extremists, opioid epidemic. And then internally, things you don't read about in the press, professionalizing the office and hiring a good group of AUSA's assistant United States attorneys to do the work day in and day out.
8: When we asked Trutanich if he had his sights on running for any elected position, he said he had no plans to run for office and will soon announce a new role he is taking in the private sector. He also declined to say what party he's affiliated with, saying he enjoyed the fact that as a U.S. attorney, he represented neither Republican nor Democratic Party, but instead represented the United States and that it came as an appointed role rather than one that included a highly charged election.
9: So, you know, I've got five more business days in this job, seven more days until I am officially out of the job. I plan to cherish those seven days, and like I have the last few years. Once I leave on in March, there will be an announcement about where I'm going. This opportunity to serve, along with the opportunity to serve the people of Nevada at the state AG's office, really are more opportunities than I deserve this early in my career. Similar fantastic opportunities have presented themselves in the private sector, and that's where I'll be going.
8: Trutanich's office in October announced a special point person who would be helping to ensure the integrity of the election. While he can't confirm or deny any ongoing investigations into voter suppression or voter fraud, and he says his office has not charged anyone at this point, he did tell us what the U.S. attorney's role is as part of a task force of officials from different agencies who are seeking to ensure clean elections.
9: Our job is to prosecute voter suppression should it occur and prosecute voter fraud should it occur. The, there's a long-standing Department of Justice policy called the non-interference policy, which makes clear that elections, even federal elections, are run by state and county officials, and that Department of Justice, U.S. Attorney's Offices, do not get involved in those elections until they're certified. Period. End of story. Department of Justice's role, my job during the election is to, believe it or not, to deter future fraud by prosecuting either voter fraud or voter suppression should there be evidence and proof beyond a reasonable doubt. The Department of Justice's role is to deter future fraud and future suppression through prosecution, not to stop ongoing fraud or ongoing suppression during Uh, while it's happening during the election cycle. That's the goal of the non-interference policy, as I understand it.
8: Trutanich's office in Nevada got a special prosecutor to help with unemployment fraud, which has been a major concern that state officials say is causing delay for Nevada in seeking benefits. Trutanich talks about getting the special prosecutor and other successes the Nevada office had in securing
9: extra help from the federal government. One thing that I've tried to do in various priority categories is go back to Maine Justice and fight for additional resources from the the department for Nevada. Uh, And we've been really successful at that. I'd say I'd put our record on that against any other district in the country. As I think about it, we have the special prosecutor for unemployment fraud, domestic violence prosecutor for Project Veronica, which is our domestic violence initiative. We got a MMIP, a Missing and Murdered Indigenous Person Coordinator, from the department funding for that. And there's a few others, but those three are huge priority areas. They've allowed us to be nimble. They've allowed us to uh, accomplish stuff in those areas.
8: We asked how Nevada has fared in relation to the rest of the country when it comes to fraud surrounding CARES Act relief money and efforts to hold the perpetrators accountable.
9: We've prosecuted a handful of Paycheck Protection Act cases. I expect that there will be more. We have prosecuted several handful of unemployment fraud cases, and I expect there will be many more. I'll back into that answer by saying there were only 11 districts that got an unemployment fraud prosecutor. So 11 districts were designated as hotspots by the Department of Justice to prosecute unemployment fraud. And Nevada was one of them. And Nevada was one of the districts that was designated a hotspot and was one of the districts that got those extra resources because they were needed. And so we're going to see additional prosecutions in that area for months, perhaps years to come.
8: Trutanich's office has also played a role in addressing a rise in extremism and threats of violence.
9: So we can't do our job at the U.S. Attorney's Office without our partnerships that we have at the state and local level. Eighty-five percent of law enforcement is at the state and local level. We are the other 15 percent, and so just by the numbers, we need to rely on them. We also need to rely on our partnerships with entities like the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League. And uh, they send leads into law enforcement all the time. The Joint Terrorism Task Force is a good example of partnerships. One case comes to mind when we talk about, actually two cases come to mind when we talk about cases that sort of embody extremism. One is Colin Climo the other is the Boogaloo Boys and the Boogaloo Boys case obviously is still ongoing so I'm going to limit my comments there the Colin Climo case isn't I'm going to talk about both in turn Colin Climo was an individual arrested in the summer of 2019 shortly after the Dayton Ohio and El Paso Texas shootings happened on the same day we just we had been sort of monitoring his online activity for months and at that point, we thought, well, it is probably time to, to do some type of overt action to, in hopes of disrupting it. And we did a search warrant within a few days. After the search warrant, we found bomb-making materials and charged him that day with possession of bomb-making materials. He pled guilty and was sentenced. I believe that that case disrupted somebody that was on the path to potentially if his schematics were to be believed, attack a Jewish synagogue or a LBGTQ bar on Fremont Street. Um proud of that case. The Boogaloo Boys is another case. That case, obviously, in the wake of George Floyd's death, there were protests going on here in Reno and also in southern Nevada around the courthouses. There was, as alleged, there was a plan to go to the protests to attack law enforcement, and protesters in an attempt to instigate violence. And the three individuals were arrested just miles away from those protests, too. And sort of, I think that overt action, that disruption, likely saved saved a significant amount of violence, perhaps lives.
8: But he says some of the things he's most proud of are simply running a solid operation at the U.S. Attorney's Office.
9: I want to talk a little bit about the stuff that the day-to-day stuff in this office that really gets me out of bed too. And that's the work, that's the people that we brought in, the people that have been here, the people that we brought in, the public servants that do the work. So when I got here in January of 2019, there was a 40, nearly a 40% vacancy rate in the office, double the vacancy rate of any other district in the country so we needed to build a team uh, of prosecutors and and staff professionals to do the work we've hired 75 of them and i am excited to see the work that they're going to do as prosecutors for the department of justice for years to come i think that in- investment early on in revamping the hiring process and getting people on board quickly paid dividends in 2020 to the, the body of casework that we've been able to accomplish. And it's as those prosecutors develop, they're gonna bring more complex cases, they're gonna bring more impactful cases, uh, and I'm really excited for that. I have, this office is bigger than me, it's about the people in it. And whoever is the next U.S. attorney, I wish them well, make sure that the office is doing equal justice for all, and that culture pervades every corner of this office. And I have all the confidence that they'll carry on the initiatives that I've started and the initiatives that were started long before I got here. The Department of Justice, through the U.S. Attorney's Office, has the ability to make Nevadans' lives better. Safer communities, getting high-level drug traffickers off the street, getting human traffickers behind bars where they deserve to be, and uh, combating the opioid epidemic. That's why this office needs to run properly, because it has a real impact on the people of Nevada.
8: After Drew Tanich leaves this weekend, an acting U.S. attorney will take his place until a new top federal prosecutor in Nevada is nominated by President Biden and confirmed by the U.S. Senate you can find a written version of this story on our website. The story was originally reported by me, Michelle Rendells, and Joey Lovato helped run the mics and edited the piece.
0: And now we want to take a minute to dive a little deeper into the context of the coronavirus in nevada to help us do that as always is nevada independent healthcare reporter megan messerly all right megan as we do every week i'd like to start with the numbers and what kind of trends we're seeing in the data so noting that we're recording at around 9 30 a.m on friday february 26th uh, what can you tell us about those trends
4: Yeah, so we're sitting right now at um, nearly 293,000 COVID-19 cases confirmed statewide since the beginning of the pandemic. We've been talking now over the last couple of weeks about how the number of new reported cases has generally been decreasing uh, day over day now for for several weeks. Um, This week, we did see a couple of days of a little uptick in that seven-day average. So that's not just um, day over day increases, but that actually sort of affects the seven-day average as well. So it's sort of unclear if that's just a little bump in the data um, or whether this is the start of an increasing trend is just three days of data is not enough to really know where this is going. I know state officials are looking at the data and hoping that we'll continue to see cases decrease um, at least through the end of the month, which. Now I'm realizing it's February 26th, so we're almost there. Um, And so we're kind of at this wait and see point where we see, okay, are we going to kind of stay at this plateau, maybe a little up, maybe a little down? Um, Are we going to go right into another increasing trend, which is really what happened when we um, saw cases decrease in September, they decreased, decreased, then just went right back up. So we're kind of in this wait and see period where we don't really know where the data is going to take us, what the impact of a vaccination is going to be and what the impact of these new variants is going to be. So it's worth talking a little bit about deaths as well. So we're at a little more than 4,900 deaths uh, from COVID-19 in Nevada. Now, we have seen the number of new reported deaths day over day go down, which is uh, good news. Again, we see that sort of lagging trend, um, So, we, but we are starting to see some improvement in that data, which is good news. And then we have seen improvement in the hospitalization numbers as well. We're at 532 hospitalizations as of the last reported day. Uh, it's worth noting that we were above 2,000 at the worst point uh, in the fall and winter, so we've, uh, you know, significantly come down from that point, but we're not as 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 we were back before cases started increasing in September. Uh, Now on the vaccination front, which is obviously what everyone is focused on right now, uh, statewide we've administered about uh, 622,000 vaccinations statewide. That's first and second doses combined. Uh, and looking at the numbers, that means about uh, 13.6% of Nevadans are either partially or fully vaccinated. That means they've either gotten their first shot or both shots of the COVID-19 vaccine. So we have seen that uh, percentage of Nevadans vaccinated uh, creep up. Obviously, we'd like to see it creeping up even faster, but um, we are starting to see some improvement in those numbers.
0: Okay, so I want to talk about those vaccines for a second, because uh, we finally got to the over 65 groups. So now anyone over 65 in the state of Nevada is uh, eligible to get their vaccine. And now the people next up really want to know. So that would be those with pre existing conditions. Uh, They still can't get it. Do we have any idea when that might change?
4: Yeah, it's a good question. And it's one I get quite a bit. Uh, Unfortunately, there's not a clear answer at this point on when those folks with pre-existing conditions uh, will be eligible to get the vaccine, at least in Nevada. Uh, They are eligible in some uh, other states already. Really, what we saw was when the state was focusing on vaccinating that 70 and up, age group. It was sort of a matter of uh, getting to a point where it was sort of hard to fill those appointment slots. And it was really at that point that we opened up to the 65 plus group. Um, you know, the the federal pharmacy partners, you know, were going to be getting extra doses. That's why the decision was initially made to open it up to the 65 plus group. And then we saw Southern Nevada Health District quickly follow suit because they said, you know, we have all these doses. Um, you know, we're just opening it up sort of unexpectedly to the 65 plus uh, population, which is where we're at now. So uh, not a great timeframe, unfortunately. I uh, no, no idea sort of when that group um, is going to come up. On the other hand, I wouldn't be surprised if it sort of comes up rather quickly, um, you know, it, as it did with the 65 to 69 group, it was all of a sudden, you know, they, those folks are eligible to get the vaccine. Uh, so it might be a similar uh, situation, but I know state officials are hopeful, at least with, you know, more doses of the vaccine coming to the state and seeing those allocations increase, that hopefully it'll be sooner rather than later.
0: All right. And one last bit of vaccine questioning, and that's related to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Now, we expect it to be approved anytime soon. But do we have any kind of idea what the approval of that vaccine might have on Nevada's vaccination efforts?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely going to impact, uh, you know, any any allocation of more doses to the state is, is a good thing for our vaccination efforts. So I know Nevada and other states are, are eagerly waiting the, the approval of that vaccine hopefully sometime here soon. Um, the, the good thing that that state immunization officials have noted is that the, the Johnson Johnson vaccine as we've talked about before is only um, a one shot vaccine. So a lot easier than having to come back for your, for your second dose on the appointed day. Um, additionally, it isn't uh, as difficult to store as the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. It doesn't require the same kind of um, cold storage that, that both of those do. The Pfizer is a little bit trickier than Moderna, uh, but Johnson & Johnson's e- even easier. It's, it's stable in the fridge for quite a bit. So um, that makes it a lot easier in terms of getting that vaccine out to folks and uh, a lot more stable to, to transport and store as well. So uh, it will have an impact. I think it's a question of, um, you know, we, we've heard about Johnson & Johnson sort of ramping up uh, vaccine doses. They've promised a certain amount uh, by the summer. But um, the, the initial reports are at least that, you know, might might take some time to get those doses coming to state. So so it will have an impact. It's just a question of um, how quickly it does.
0: All right. Well, if you want to know more about the coronavirus in Nevada, you can head to our website, thenevadaindependent.com. There you can find weekly updates from Megan in her coronavirus contextualized series, as well as a regularly updated dashboard with all the latest COVID-19 data. Megan, thanks for joining me.
6: Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters.
1: We'd like to thank Tabitha Mueller, Ray Gertkin, Ian Bartram, Madeline Beck, Troy Forbes, Nick Trutanich, Michelle Rendell's, and Megan Messerly for being
0: on the show this week. If you like listening to the show, consider leaving a rating and review wherever you listen, or share it on social media. It helps the show grow and reach more people.
1: If you'd like to tell us how we are doing you can send us comments questions concerns or even the sought after praise by emailing me at joey at the com or jacob at jacob at the com.
0: local reno band people with bodies wrote and performed our original theme song if you want to hear more of their music you can find them on spotify and bandcamp we had additional music this week from lance conrad and some music made just for the podcast by joey
1: thank you for listening to indie matters i'm your host joey lovato
0: And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis.
1: And we'll talk to you next week.
0: many graphs to make yeah if you give it graphs for hours i will i will try and listen while i make graphs it will we will see